Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. I know Prince, I understand, was a fan of yours. Um, what point did you become aware of him? And what experiences did you have related to Prince? Uh, we had in common an engineer, Tommy Vicari. And uh, Tommy called me and said, there's somebody that I'm going to be working with. And he reminds me so much of you because he plays all these different instruments. And you guys have a lot of the same influences and you know, real, you know, meticulous about trying to get, you know, get, get things right. And so, you know, I just want to, I just want you guys to meet. So he called him on the phone. He, he knew that Prince was a fan. He called him on the phone and we had a very short conversation on the telephone. After that, we had the occasion to talk a little bit more often. And then when Prince did his first album, he asked me to write the strings out on a song called Baby on the For You album. So he kind of knew what he wanted, but, you know, at that point, he he, he, he didn't write it down. So uh, I did and uh, conducted that session. We became friends after that and talked more. He used to ask me, what did you use on this particular? What is that sound? What is this? What is that? And I was a fan, becoming a fan of his as his music was coming out and everything. Um, and we had the occasion to meet and talk at key times in his development. And it was always about the music and it was always, you know, sharing, sharing ideas about the music. Um, when Purple Rain came out, I was on a promotional tour. He was on a, 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 some sort of, I don't, I think he was on a concert tour. Um, he knew that I was staying in a particular hotel and he was happened to be in that hotel and he called and he said, I'm downstairs in the restaurant. Um, can you come down? So I said, okay, restaurant was closed, but they, you know, let us, let us come in and we sat down and talked and he was really worried about purple rain. He says, okay, I may have been not more knock at you on this one. I said, what are you talking about? Got the big movie coming out. He says, yeah. I said, are you worried about it? He said, yeah. I said, it's, oh, it's probably going to be great. I said, did you do the best you could? He said, well, yeah. I said, okay. What else can you do? Let it go. And he said, well, from your lips, I can never forget it. He said, from your lips to God's ears, but I'm glad that we're talking about it because I needed to talk. I said, okay. Well, the movie came out and you, you know the rest. The next pivotal moment, you know, and he blew up to be the mega, mega superstar, blah, blah, blah. The next time we had a chance to talk, he was at, in the, uh, another pivotal conversation, he was at the Grammys and he was going to open the show. He and Beyonce were doing something together. Now Prince is the veteran and here's Beyonce, you know, and they were going to open the Grammys. And I was music director that year. I, this, the, this was like my third my third time being music director on that show. And, the, and as was the practice by then, especially for television, and especially a show of that magnitude, we have lots of artists and moving parts like crazy. A lot of the artists would supplement their live performance with the use of pre-recorded vocals, like backgrounds 
or things like that because you didn't get the whole band on the stage sometimes. And, there, you know, there was maybe one reason or another to be able to augment what you were doing so that sonically over the air, everything would be like it needed to be. And I went to the rehearsal, which was great. And by the time the producer of the show realized that Prince and I were old friends, it was like, oh, okay. Well, when we got to the ready to do the show, they, you know, they run the whole show in order day of, and then they mount it. They want to make sure that they can change those sets on time and, and, and all the kind of stuff, you know, that are part of the spectacle of what that live presentation uh, over the airwaves is. And when we got to rehearsing Prince's and, and Beyonce's number, the producer decided that day, I want Prince to play this whole thing live. It's so exciting. I want him to do the whole thing live. So he says, so you, Patrice, go up and tell, convince him of that. Tell him that. And I said, okay, just so that I understand. Uh, we've rehearsed it a certain way. Everybody in the truck is prepared to do a certain thing. The show is in like three hours and we want to do something a little bit different. Do, do we think that this is the best idea for the opening for the show of the show? And again, he says, your job to do and convince him because that's what I want. I'm like, oh, this is not a great idea. <laughs> but, you know, my job is to go up and tell him. So, I go to Prince and, and I tell him, I said, the producer wants to, is requesting that you consider playing this song live, live without any, you know, of the pre-recorded vocal enhancements or things that, you know, you've been doing. He would like to see it do that. He says, what do you think I should do? <laughs> so I said, well, I can't tell you what to do. I can only say, can I speak facts? And I'm looking around for any microphone that's open because I know, man, this is getting ready to be bad. I said, they in the truck are prepared to do what we've been talking about for the last week. They've seen you in the rehearsals and they've got all that stuff hooked up, ready to do that. Cameramen have all that stuff ready to do that. Director of the show ready to do that. His camera angles are always already based on that. I said, now out in the house, the audience that's there, I can go out there and make, you know, I'll be out there and I'll make sure that the balances in the house are, are as good as they, you know, can be from the standpoint of my say-so, but they too have all been prepared, you know, and, and stuff. So it's your decision to make, but you know that they are going to finish this number. They're going to rehearse the other 12 for the show and they're going to reset. And the next time you walk on the stage is live worldwide. So what would you like to do? <laughs> he said, tell him no. <laughs> and I went back to my producer and I said um he said no and that was <laughs> that was the end of it I'm like oh lord <laughs> the moral of the story is this though as big a star as Prince became and as many times as I had had the occasion to be with him or to work with him you know in these in those moments our mutual respect for each other's musicianship and our mutual respect for the presentation of the music in a way and in a style that would allow for there to be, uh, for us to feel good about it and for it, it to represent a certain excellence. That's even at that moment, you know, he, he leaned in to that and I, have mad respect for, for, for him and for that. Wow. And that was a tremendous performance, of course, that was captured at that show. Um, and it's funny cause I had, uh, Tom Scott on and he's done some award shows, man. It's like incredible what's pulled off producing those and music directing them. I mean, God. Yeah. Tom is a dear friend. And actually I watched him a lot. When he did a lot of those shows, I learned a lot. 
you know, we, we talked a lot. Yeah. So uh, having worked with Prince on something like that, um, how'd you feel like, I'm sure you saw the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing he did and the Super Bowl. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, well, he always knew what to do. The, 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 you know, the idea of, and he did homework and research. Some people don't really get that about him, that it wasn't, you know, he could be very, very, very precise and very calculating about what he wanted the end, re the end result to be. And it was out of respect for having seen it done right or having seen certain, certain payoff, you know, certain, certain, or certain emotion evoked through stuff, you know, and just like, just like a lot of people, you know, everybody goes to a stage where they think they know what they're doing, but they really, really don't. But, but that's how you, that's how you learn how much more you have to learn. And by the time we got to see the Super Bowl and all of those kinds of things, you know, he, he pretty much had down what he wanted to deliver and had the capacity and the means to be able to pull it off, you know, without having to make too many uh, concessions. Wow. What a uh, history you had. Um, I mean, I learned that's a lot. like. I learned a lot watching it. That's at least 25 years, right? From baby through the Grammys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you never uh, did a tour uh, with him? No, I didn't. I didn't. The closest I got to that was uh, when he, when the Batman movie came out. You know, he remember he did the soundtrack for the Batman movie. Mm -hmm. uh, he performed Electric Chair on the 15th anniversary show of Saturday Night Live. And he asked me to join him for that. Painted my name on the piano. You can probably see it online or something like that. But yeah, so I got to play. You know, I did get to play with them. That's a fantastic performance. Another yeah. one. You know, another yeah. another right. Better than the <laughs> better than the recorded version. I think. <laughs> you know, it's more. Uh, it rocks harder. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, Speaking of tours, though, who were some of the uh, folks uh, back in your, you know, crossover, you know, radio peak that uh, you went out with that were memorable for you? Oh, I did a long tour with um, an opening for Jeffrey Osborne, hmm. which was awesome. I did some things with Sister Sledge. I did quite a bit of stuff with uh, Ashford and Simpson. Um. There used to be, you know, those big festivals, uh, Superfest, but why is the Superfest cool jazz festival? You know, you know, and I did quite a few of those as well. So I got to also, you know, watch a lot of acts, uh, you know, the Whispers, the OJs, you know, people like that who were also part of those shows. Rick James. I met Tina Marie during that time. And we became friends and um, that was happening, you know, uh, during that time. And then I went out with a lot of different people as a featured artist a lot, especially in the jazz area. So lots of uh, dates and sessions with, you mentioned Lenny White, um, did quite a few things with Christian McBride. Um, did probably one of the biggest and most important pivotal moments of my life with Carlos Santana and Wayne Shorter mm. on the same tour. They were touring together. It was the Santana Shorter project. And so I was in the band to be able to play with both of them. And the rhythm section was Ndugu Chancellor, Alfonso Johnson, and myself, along with the rest of Carlos's rhythm section, which included Chester Thompson and Armando Peraza and all these other, you know, great, wonderful uh, players and percussionists. It was it was amazing. And that was like the summer of of 1989. Woo! Game changer. Just wow. being able to play with my hero, you know, Santana and also Wayne Shorter nightly for like three months. Crazy. Mm. Crazy. Kept you on your toes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
was there anyone of all those you mentioned, or maybe one you didn't mention from back then that just really impressed you with their, their stage show? In the more you know, in the R and B funk, the R and B funk. Well, yeah. I was watching the evolution of Earth Wind Fire shows. You know, they they were getting bigger and bigger and more and more and more and more elaborate. But I was more impressed with how they never lost in the bigness of the shows. The spirit of the music was front and center. You had your magic and you had your smoke and you had your, you know, stuff going off and all, all, all special effects and blah, blah, so on and so forth. But the spirit in the music was the same. And now that they're not do, doing that anymore, you know, from the standpoint of the those kinds of shows, the same energy and those same parts have been handed down and handed down and it's still there. So the music was the first, you know what I mean? That was the. That was the first thing that was a pri- I, 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 I get a little concerned about the need right now for the young artists to feel like they have to be dealing with all of this, all the marketing and stuff and social media and everything. And I realize it's potential and it's it's uh, a relevance to what it is that they do. But it's scary to think that they they have a lot. Some of them have a lot of eyes on them when they're and they're half baked. Mm. So if the music itself and the reason that you're doing the thing is 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 the is is the first priority, and the other stuff happens around it and uh, orga- organically from it, I think we have that as a as a uh, advantage. I see that as an advantage. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it should be all about the music and the art. Mm-hmm. All the other That's stuff. Whatever you're surrounded by is just like the difference between wearing a, you know, a suit one day and sweatshirt and tennis shoes the next. You're the same person. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I bet we were at some of the same shows back. I'm in sure the, we were. Late seventies, eighties. No doubt. Um, I remember seeing Earth, Wind, and Fire at the Forum, like in '78 or something like that. Yeah. Um. So, I want to mention just a couple other tracks that are favorites of mine um, that were on some of those records, and see if it sparks any um, fondness or memory uh, for you. Uh, but music of this earth, really funky. Yeah. Uh, wish, wishful thinking, just so you know, it's easy going, really nice. Um. Um, some of these that weren't singles. Uh, the funk yeah, won't right. let you down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and that one's mad. It's over seven minutes. That one, you really let it go. Um, and um, remind me later on. Mm-hmm. Really nice mellower track. Um, Perfect love. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a memory that goes with each one of those. <laughs> Yeah, each one. You want to go down the list real quick? Go for it. Say then. Okay, give me the name. Give me a title, and I'll tell you. Uh, start at the. Where did you start? Music of this earth. Music of the earth. Okay, music of the earth was on the first Electra album, and the, my fondest memory of that two things. One, Abraham Laboriel Senior is known as a wonderful bass player, and he is. He is also a wonderful guitarist, and he played rhythm guitar on acoustic guitar on on uh, that track and also on with on wishful thinking that you also mentioned which was on that album uh wishful thinking the thing that i remember most was that i wanted to have a, an instrumental section in it and wanted to do something a little different a little lighter a little leaning in a little bit more to my fondness for woodwinds so we had flute and clarinet and bassoon and Things that you would not typically hear on a on a on a on a, on a, on a pop record as that uh, interlude, and uh, I played guitar on on that one. Wow! See, I like that eclectic touch thrown in there. You know, you got to have that; makes it unique. Um, and then um, I guess it was a single. I didn't mention it before, but it didn't chart. I guess uh, giving it up. Mm. It's giving up. 
Yeah, with DJ Rogers singing. Yeah, I wanted to do a duet with somebody, and I, you know, in my mind, I, 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 you know, go for the, go for the top. So I was trying to get Stevie Wonder to do it, and he was out of the country or whatever like that, and they we're like, okay. So Reggie Andrews said, "What about DJ Rogers, whose voice I actually did love?" And you know, he says, "We, we, have, we I can, I can, I can call him." I, they were friendly, so he said, "I can call him and see if he would do it," and he said, "Yes." And there you go. I also remember cutting the track on that one because Freddie Washington played drums on that track. Hmm. And we had a lot of time, a lot of fun doing it because that was one of the few times that we did a rhythm track that we did not record everybody at the same time. Um, I played the roads and our, the first things that got, went, on, went on tape at that time were the roads and the uh, and the drums. Hmm. Uh, very similarly, we did Remind Me That Way, where it was Rhodes, me playing the Rhodes, and Gatson playing the drums. And then there was another cut. You didn't happen to mention this, but there was another cut called Settle For My Love, which uh, was a ballad. And Freddie played guitar, and I played drums. And those were the first two tracks that we put on, on that one. So, you know what I mean? We were also having a lot of fun experimenting with different ways in which to build uh, build uh, good feeling tracks. Did they give you a lot of studio time or did you have to really be quick? Um, we learned to be quick. You know, we had enough, we had uh, um, enough time to be able to do what we needed to do, but we were efficient with the time that came from being on other people's sessions from watching other people either maximize the use of the time without it feeling too much pressure or blow it, <laughs> you know, wanting to get stuff done and, and things not, not happening or uh, a lot of time being wasted or whatever. And, you know, I've been on both sides of that, you know, where, where you have plenty of time, you know, if the, if the budget's allowed or you had complete lockout, uh, of a particular studio for weeks on end or something like that. You know, you take your time and if you're not really feeling it that day or you didn't get what you came to get, well, okay, we'll we'll try again tomorrow or we'll try again in a couple of days. I didn't have that kind of budget. Now, I'm not going to say that I was constrained, but we knew how much time we had and we tried to really make the most of it and at the same time allow for there to be those moments of spontaneity that allowed for us to go down one direction, realize, whoa, that was cool. Let's do that, you know, instead. So we, 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 we learned to be efficient. Did you tend to be a night owl? Did the magic usually come in the wee hours of the morning or during the day or any time or what? It really varied. I think most of the things that we did were, 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 uh, as I recall, during the daytime. Well, we, we, could, we went in with a plan usually of what we were going to try to accomplish each day. And, uh, you know, the pre-production aspect of it was a lot, was, was actually, um, and in most things that I've, that I've worked on, you know, since, you know, uh, and it doesn't matter which, which medium it is, whether it's TV or film or, or whatever, the pre-production and the planning of it, if you, if you think that through and get that right, the execution of it really goes pretty, pretty smoothly and pretty quickly. And that's what gives you the, the room to be able to, that if something spontaneous happens or something serendipitous happens, that you can, you can follow it because you know, you've kind of worked out how you're going to, how you're going to proceed. So you can be a lot more relaxed and therefore a lot more open to opportunity when it shows itself. Mm -hmm. uh, music, uh, I'm sorry, message in the music. Mm. Message in the music. It was, I mean, I was looking for something that was very, short and simple just to kind of wrap around the all the different music that were that was on that album and um i had my a lot of you know a lot of the singers who had who were on that album and some of the other ones you know we were all together so nothing too crazy nothing uh, <laughs> <laughs> too glamorous about that one just fun yeah the funk won't let you down Ah, the funk won't let you down. So originally that track was recorded for something else. 
And for whatever reason, the person decided to go in a different direction. So I said, well, can I buy the track back? Because <laughs> I thought it was really had some potential. So we did. They said, okay, no problem. And, you know, that doesn't happen like that. It's usually a big federal case to do anything like that. But this was back in the day when everybody used to be helpful and sharing. <laughs> and uh, then we finished it. And I wanted something that would kind of lean into the the idea of what we had left in terms of the, 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 the disco vibe, but still have the, you know, disco was orchestrated and big and luscious and, you know, the beat was there, but it was, it was broad. It was a statement, you know, so I wanted to do something like that. So that's, that was what that, that one was about. Well, Jim, let me down. So, <laughs> okay. Um, and remind me, you already mentioned, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that actually continues to be one of the most sampled songs of my catalog. And there's just something about it, I guess, that, you know, has remained uh, relevant and timeless from the standpoint of people liking to rap over it and interpolate and extract. So it's been, it's been, it's been good to, to check that out. Does that make you in hindsight think, man, that should have been a single maybe? No, <laughs> I don't think about it in those terms anymore. Um, you know, I don't know that I ever really did because the albums at the time represented a collection of what you were bringing forth at that moment. Maybe that's part of my um, coming up at a time when, when, when some albums have were concepts, you know, concept albums, you know, what's going on and songs in the key of life. And you know what I mean? Oh yeah. I wasn't trying to do that, but it, but albums represented a collection of pieces you were putting forward. And you'll remember well, back in the day, that used to be part of the ceremony. You go get your album and you take the paper off and you read while the record is playing and you go from cut one all the way and you turn it over. And, you know, it was a thing. You didn't look for singles like that, although your singles would typically be, you know, the first track or, or something like that. But you were... It was about a, a collection and an offering at that time of those pieces working together. And if there was any one concept, it was that, you know, that's what I wanted to do is have within an idea, a certain variety of a presentation of that idea. And then I would go on to the next album and it would be a presentation and a variety within the next idea. So singles were... Uh, a reality because obviously people on the radio and remember that it was about radio at that time, then they were not going to play necessarily your whole album all the way through every day. So you did, there were things that always did pop out, you know, as singles in order to interest people in wanting to uh, go deeper and, 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 and go get your, your album. Yeah. Well, I still preach that albums matter. So they'll always matter for me. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, how else can you make a comprehensive statement musically without having an album that ties things together somehow? Mm -hmm. um, Perfect Love. Perfect Love was one of the first songs that I did in a home in a home studio. Not not this one, but I bought some equipment and kind of revamped my my setup a little bit. And uh, that album uh, that's on the album called Now. And uh, that was kind of an, the whole album was kind of an experiment because I did the majority of it, you know, with my little home set up in my garage <laughs> to see if we could. By this time, you know, we had these digital keyboards and they sounded amazing. And, you know, there were just ways in which you could just get things done in a different way. And, and it was part of that experimentation with some of those other colors and ideas and approaches. So, uh, yeah, perfect levels. That was that represented that. Did you feel comfortable doing, you know, music videos and that sort of thing back then? Was it fun or was it 
just something like arduous or no it was fun it was a lot of fun yeah you know it was like i likened it to oh this must be how it's like to make a little movie you know uh, it was it was a lot of fun it's a lot of work um and by the time by the time i was allowed to do it we had to do real really inexpensively but we had to do like three in one day once it was crazy but the budgets got better and when they got when the budgets got better the videos got better i didn't do that many i got to do a video for forget me nots i think i did one for a song called never gonna give you up and look up which were done on the same day i did one for a song called um breakout which was on the arista album and one called uh watch out and one called get off and those were the videos uh that i made was was get off a little bit of uh, a little bit of that prince minneapolis influence happening or i don't know i definitely uh, showcased on there playing more than one instrument so we had you could see me playing drums and then you see another Patrice in the corner playing bass and another Patrice in the corner dancing and another Patrice in the corner playing keys. So. But musically though, it seemed more synth heavy than. Yeah, it was definitely was. They have two yeah. basses on it. It's Gerald Albright and Freddie playing yeah. bass. And a uh, lot, yeah, you know, exploring the different, um, keyboards and different colors that were, were available to us because up to that point, I mean, I'd always been about that. You know, even back to my very first album, there was a song called Puttered Bobcorn. And it was using some of the sense and stuff, but by the time we got to get off the sophistication and the range of, 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 of things that could be done, uh, you know, with the commercial synthesizers was, was pretty intense. And now it's just over the moon yeah well i love some of those funk tracks you did on the prestige stuff that was definitely the herbie you know influence coming through on some of those i felt mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know you moved to arista i think that was like what just a one-shot deal um well it wasn't supposed to be a one-shot deal uh, uh when i left electra uh you know word got out that i was probably not i had been there seven years and so when i and word got out that I was probably not going to re-up. Um, and Clive was interested, Clive Davis was interested in uh, me uh, coming to Electra, uh, coming to uh, Arista. And, uh, you know, he was aware of my work and all this. So, I, you know, I said, well, okay. You know, it seemed, it seemed like a good deal and a fair uh, deal and certainly was going to be able to take advantage of what had been built up to that time, particularly in the uh, in the area of more uh, commercial and pop music, uh, so I did an album and uh, handed it in, and he says, "I don't hear a hit." Well, that wasn't that scary to me. I had just been through this, <laughs> and it turned out okay. So I'm like, "Okay, so what do you want to do? We're gonna find you that hit record." But that took like two years. I was on that label for three years and the record wasn't released for a very long time. And I'm like, okay. Uh, then when I finally did get the record that they uh, wanted to release, it didn't have, it, it, it just didn't feel organic to me. Now, maybe it's a hit song. I don't know, but it didn't, it didn't sound like me to me. And I was concerned that by the when when it hit radio that it wouldn't sound like me to them. And I was right. <laughs> I it was like, well, you know, this is okay, but this is not the kind of record that we when we waiting for the Patrice Russian, we're looking for something else, you know. And there was a little bit of pushback, uh, you know, with the with the record that they wanted as a single, and then radio did went into the album and dictated the first single. And I don't know that that went over too well at the label. See, but remember, because by that time I had a rapport, at least with black radio, from years and years and years of stuff that they found and broke. 
And that stuff was still in pretty good rotation. And it was in pretty good rotation. So this was, it was a very uncomfortable situation. And I, I really didn't think that, well, if this is what it means to grab the brass ring, you know, that you're going to be, you know, kind of waiting and it just didn't feel right to me. So uh, I asked to be released. So, you know, to my surprise and great blessing. And I think, uh, you know, I think that there was like an understanding that, you know, this is never going to be what I think Clive thought it was going to be. And it wasn't definitely what it was going to be what I thought it was going to be in terms of how how it would go. You know, it was a little bit of a tug of war, but I was able to get out. And then I focused on film scoring and some of the other music direction types of things that uh, that I wanted to do. And I wasn't that keen on being involved too much for a while with the recording scene, you know, with the with making records. And, uh, you know, so I recorded with other people and um, did a lot of uh, television, which was wonderful. And, and I enjoyed it. It definitely, um, to have something else to do and to have a skill set that allowed me to continue to participate in music and doing what I love, but doing maybe a different side of it. You know, I think it was healthy for me. I guess uh, Prince didn't ask you for advice when he did almost the same thing with Clive almost 10 years later. And it was just <laughs> a one-off and it didn't go how either of them probably thought it would. And Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so you just came back with uh, one really more like R&B style record with uh, anything but Ordinary in 94. And um, I don't know if it didn't do what you had hoped for or you just decided to move on. But from that point on, I mean, you really pretty much been, you know, back deeper into into jazz type stuff. Yeah. Uh, anything but Ordinary. Somebody asked me if I would... You know, we miss you being out there. Da 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 da. Would you do a, a record? Small label syndrome. It was owned by one of the independent promoters that in the back in the day that had been very key in in, in terms of supporting uh, Forget Me Nots. And uh, you know, small budget. You know, but doable. You know, and it wasn't like I didn't want to do something. It was just like, you know, I, I, I definitely needed that rest and that break, you know, after my experience with Ariston and stuff. And I wasn't looking forward to do anything but be a situation where I felt like if as a record company, we were going to be in a certain, maybe it was a little ahead of the, my time, but I felt like it, with an independent label, maybe it was more possible with an independent label to be into a little bit more of a partnership. And... Um, it started off that way and uh, the record came out and it started off doing really good. And then the company mysteriously burned down to the ground. And what they did, I guess, in order to keep me or any of the other artists that they had from being just quite real crazy was they said, you know, your masters were destroyed, but you have digital copies of everything in, in, in that they were, they were mastered into CDs. Those CDs is what's left. <laughs> so wow. you can have it and all the rights to it and take everything. Just, just don't sue. <laughs> wow. Oh, so that's what happened. That's what happened with that one. So anything but ordinary is a collector's item because it's very hard to find. It won't. It won't be. You know necessarily re. re Reprinted from 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 the original masters, it'll be re- reprinted if ever from the CDs. Wow, that's an amazing story. <laughs> some good things on there too. Uh, yeah, you had some New Jack Swing type stuff coming into the mix on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so ninety seven with Signature, you kind of moved, you know, back toward the direction that I feel like you've. Yeah, that was another thing on. where you know. It was kind of like, what's the say? What's the what's the line in the Godfather? The more I try to they, leave, the more every they, time I, they bring me back. They yeah. try to bring me. <laughs> so this was one of those. Now, now we're on the precipice of what smooth jazz was about to break. We had, had the Quiet Storm, 
you know, with music that was sort of leaning into the some jazz, but was commercially viable. You had your Grover Washingtons and Najee's, you know, Gerald Albright, blah, blah, blah. Then um, it was just at the beginning of that. And, the, and again, the, one of the independent promoters that had worked with me on Forget Me Nots said, you know what? I have a label and uh, I'm going to have a, or, or a label deal with Warners and this label Discovery. And uh, come on, just do just, you know, you could knock this out in your sleep. You're already doing it. Just pick a cup, you know, what I need for the for the radio uh, uh, format is pick a cover tune that you like and just make sure you do one or two of those on there, too. But do do your thing. And. That's all I won't tell you what to do. Just that. OK, so I chose a couple of covers that I really liked. I liked. Charday's Sweetest Taboo. And I liked the stylistics. Um, Hurry Up This Way Again. I always liked those two tunes. And I had been doing one of them in, in, in when I wrote certain television shows where they would have me have to play, you know, to entertain the audience bef before we go back into filming. You know, I had done an arrangement of that anyway. So I said, okay, well, I'll do those two and I'll do this. I'm small budget, but, you know, easy to, easy to do. And, you know, and I miss playing. I like being in the studio. I liked working with my friends, you know? So got that done. And before the record even came out, practically, uh, the label went into like alternative rock direction. So I was like, wow, <laughs> okay. The record came out though and got a Grammy nomination. And that was kind of a surprise. I don't know who on the, on the Board of Governors or Grammy committee or whoever, happened to have it, but they had it and it was, 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 was nominated. And uh, I said, okay. And then I decided after that, at, right after that, the whole thing just exploded with uh, downloading and all of that. I said, okay, well, I need things to settle down because I, I, you know, this is all going to change everything. And um, again, I just, took my focus back to film and TV, but another frontier opened up and that was education. And I had been going back and forth a little bit uh, invited to um, Berkeley College of Music um, a little bit. And then that increased. And uh, as I was doing all of these different kinds of things, uh, film and TV, some production, studio work and it put me in an interesting position to be able to address students from several different points of view several different perspectives artist producer player blah blah blah, blah. and um gradually that started to grow and uh, they gave me a uh, created a position at Berkeley uh, as their ambassador for artistry and education. And then not too long after that, USC was going to start its popular music program. I had done some work independently for them as a music director for a couple of, of special events. And the person who was involved in producing that show was, was sort of writing the scaffolding of what the pop music program could look like, had a, a, a way in which to get it across the goal line in terms of accreditation and et cetera, and asked me if I would be interested in being uh, one of two artists in residence. The other one was Lamont Dozier of Holland Dozier Holland. And I, I said, well, when I saw the program on, on paper, I said, this is the program we all wish we'd had when we were in college. And uh, so I said, yes. And then I got involved on that level. And then the success of the program uh, sort of uh, created the need for them to kind of restructure the music department in general, the music school in general. And when they did that, um, they made a division of contemporary music and had um the Division of Contemporary Music was comprised of the popular music program, jazz studies, 
music industry, which is the business aspect, um, music technology, and film scoring. So there's a chair for each one of those areas, and they made me the chair of the uh, popular music program. So I've been there ever since, you know, and I really enjoy it. And uh, all of the time and the work and the things, stories that we've talked about and all of that have been, have been part of what has helped fuel the creation of an organized, you know, curriculum and uh, of practitioners and practitioners who, you know, have continued, but, but who have lived exactly what it is that, you know, um, it is that they teach. So it's been really, really interesting and um, I'm enjoying it. That's fantastic. And just so amazing to be able to give back like that and pay forward, you know, what we talked about in the beginning with those great teachers that you had. Exactly. I hope they realize how fortunate they are to be able to tap into your experience and wisdom. Um, they're, they're some lucky students, I, I would say. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, congratulations on, on that, Patrice. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of the jazz records that you had done because I'm just in awe of them. Um, that jazz straight up with Stanley mm. Clark and, and Dugu and the um, CAB4 with Dennis Chambers and Brian Auger and um, uh, A Place in Time also with Back with Lenny. Um, and even in 2013, that live recording with Foley and, oh, man. <laughs> um, oh wait that was actually recorded in 97 but still don blackman mm -hmm. i mean man these records are fantastic oh well you know i've been in great i've been in great company i mean inspiring and like you like you said earlier you have to pinch myself yeah all of those had that moment where it's like whoa <laughs> you know these are people that became friends but in most of those cases i was fans for i was a fan first you know, and uh, to become friends and the music be that, that again, that, 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 that common ground, you know, uh, really, really, really cool. I, um, I liked doing those kinds of records as well because they were, you know, it's, it, it is very in the moment. And it was a nice for me, a counterbalance to the kind of control that ultimately had to take place with those uh, more commercial records because you're, you have much, you're, you know, you know, time time limitations, budget limitations, but they were why because the budgets were bigger. You know, you would seem like, oh, you're good to go. No, you you have to be that much more responsible for what the outcome is because there's that much more on the other end that has to come out of that. So one of the nice things about doing some of the records that you mentioned, the jazz records that you mentioned, is like, okay, no one, there can't be any waste of time. We got this much time today. Let's go. And the challenge was to try to really make it happen and to make it feel good. And I think we were all coming from a place of loving that action, you know, of, of, of trying to capture it in a certain way. So. Well, and you got to really finally get your jazz fusion thing out, you know? Oh my gosh. Yes. Especially with the stuff with uh, Dennis Chambers and Buddy Burnell and all of that. It was like, Whoa, <laughs> we we're right down the lane, you know? Yeah, we'll I got to it. play so much music. I, you know, I think about it sometimes. The variety of of uh, music that I have had the good fortune to to be involved in, and with people who really were, you know, in those in the trenches of each of those kinds of things. It's been really a fantastic. You know, oh, it never gets old. It's such an amazing legacy. You know, you look back at that whole thing. I mean, I'm an off, and I'm sure you must be kind of like, yeah, I did all that. Well, when I look back at it, you know, now especially, you know, you get older and you start looking at how you're going to spend your time and what you want to do and what you've done, and people start reminding you about certain kinds of things. Oh, I haven't thought about that in years. And some of the, every now and then, you know, I'll you know I'm cleaning up or something. I'll, I'll come across something else. So I'm going to play this and see what it sounds like. And you know, it's always like, wow, we actually did that. You know, um, or wow, I wish we hadn't done that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I, like I said, I learn something every time. It's always an experience that is 
you know, reeks of uh, uh, positive energy and, and uh, happiness. Which one or two projects do you feel most proud of? And I say one or two because I don't want to pin you to one. So you can pick two if you want. Oh, geez. Wow. I don't really know. You know, because each one has, there's something about each one. Remember for me that each one was a snapshot of a time. And I think if I'm going to, not wanting to pick any one because he, they're, they're, it's a continuum. I never, I, I've always even addressed all of them in that way, that they're a continuum, continuum. So there are moments in all of them which have brought forth multiple lessons or given me added jet propulsion to get to the next level. Um. And that's about the best that I can do when I do a record is to hope that the lessons that were learned in doing it and the offering at that moment allows for people to be drawn that much more into the journey of, 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 of whatever, wherever this is going. You know, it's on its way to something. I'm not sure what, but I'm having a blast, you know, just doing it. And the challenge is to maintain that that idea that uh, you do the best you can in that moment because it leads you to the next one. You feel like there's any missed gems in your catalog that you feel like really should have gotten more attention or you kind of wish they would, or maybe that you break out sometimes playing live because you're particularly fond of them? I'm sure that on every album I could, I could, I could, you know, we would go over the list of songs and say, yeah, you know, I always liked that one. But I, you know, most things happen in a, in a way that they should. And some of the things are being rediscovered right now. I mean, I'm having all kinds of, of, uh, you know, through the, you know, the technology of, of, of IG and Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, all kinds of people are finding the music and responding and saying so. So the resurgence um, of a lot of it and the discovery, I should say, of a lot of it um, and in knowing that it's standing, it's standing a, a, a certain test of time, that is the highest compliment that you can give to a composer. Well, and certainly, I mean, those hits have stood the test of time. I mean, they're still frequently played, and I'm sure you still get amazing reactions when you play them live. I do. I'm starting to get out a little more and play them live now. You know, I didn't get to play them that much. If I can get this. Can you see this back here? Yeah. Yeah. So. See, I didn't get to play them that much. I really didn't. Remember, I'm the one that couldn't get the tour support and stuff. So I didn't get out that much. I got out for a bit and I did some, but then there was a very long time before I would do it, was able to do it again. And I did so many things with so many other people that I think that on some level, you know, concert promoters or, and, and people who, who do that type of thing, they forgot that I'm a performer in my own right. So a couple of years ago, K7, a European label, bought the electric catalog, my electric catalog to be able to license re-releases re of all of that material. So they have, and it's exploded all over again. Hmm. So now there's even a bigger demand because th now they're not only the people who didn't see me then back in the day wanting to hear that music and see it performed. But now it's people who are finding, young people who are finding it, who want to hear that music and see it performed. And then there's this. There's the idea that the performance aspect of what it is that was at back then expected and now is, you know, up and down in terms of just go out and play, you know, and and go out and do it with 
with that joy of just going out to play, the pure abandon of people going to a concert to hear the music and to see it performed and hear it come off, that's something that people really are interested in. And uh, that's something that they really want to do. And I think that for a while, maybe pre-COVID, I think maybe some of the ability of those kinds of performers to put on a show like that, that was commonplace for us, but it was different for young people. And, and now when they get to hear music actually played or see it actually played, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's even a more heightened experience, <laughs> I guess. And uh, there's a demand. So I'm trying to uh, get out a little more and play more. I want to and do this music that they want to hear. Because when I've done stuff with other people, I'll play and serve the music of that artist that I'm working with. And people always come to me and say, yeah, but we thought you were going to play so-and-so. So it's not my show. So they say, well, when are you going to do your show? We want to hear your show. Yes. So that's what I'm interested in trying to uh, do a little more of now. That's so important too. I think for the young people also, it's that they are constantly distracted and bombarded with information and distractions now that the art of like really focusing and sitting and listening to say a whole album is lost on a lot of them. But if they're in a live venue in that environment, it's like the things are pushed out a little more, even though they're probably you know still doing stuff with their phone, but it allows them to really be immersed more in that musical experience. And it might be something that they really didn't get that much of because of how things have changed. Yep. I really felt feel like the art of music is, you know, it it is meant to be experienced. It always was meant to be experienced. And the idea that we were able to document it and as technology has improved, be able to document it that much more in instantly. You know, we went from records as a documentation in order to follow the trajectory of the growth of an artist that was going to be really important to you know, just records be anybody. And now anybody can make a record. And now everybody has the same platform. That's what happens with us. I think as human beings, we go, we get something new and oh, it's great. And we go all the way this way. And then we have to like realize that, okay, maybe we should walk this back a little bit to use this as a tool, as opposed to feeling like it's gotta be one or the other. It, it, it can be comma and, but you have to be patient with that to be able to feel like, so that you don't lose anything. But I, I really do believe that one of, the, one of the things that brought it all to a head for everyone was COVID, when it was gone. And so as, we, as, we, as it re-enters from the standpoint of the idea of being around people and the experience of enjoying music together and hearing it played in real time and, all of the things that go along with why we go to concerts in the first place. Um, maybe some will get some of that back. Got to be people who know how to do it, though, because it's not something that everybody can do. Yeah, I think at some level, it almost might seem like magic to some folks that haven't really been at shows like that to experience it for the first time. And, you know, for example, see what you can do on that electric piano and 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 just take it all in. It's you know, it's just something very special. And this was um, in uh, England, right? Yeah. Uh, was that, the th that was in March. Yeah. 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 Yes. We were doing a. It's funny because that that particular concert was a DJ festival. I would hope that I'm the promoter's dream because I could do <laughs> the music fits so many different uh, kinds of situations. So. I'm really well, I, I think you've yeah. always been the uh, musician's dream, you know, getting in there and doing what needs to be done and working with such a big variety of great artists of the years. Um, so how much touring are you going to do this year or performing live? Do you think I had hoped to do a lot over this summer, but it didn't quite pan out like that because, you know, uh, now I have, now I have to prove that I'm worthy of ticket sales. Yeah, prove yourself yet again. Never ends. Never ends. So okay, here I go. You know, there's a lot of demand, but again, the pe the, the the people making demands is not the is not the booker and the promoter booking. So hopefully, we can turn some of the excitement and demand from the people into 
you know, some actual shows because the demand is definitely there and uh, the desire is there. So we'll see what happens. I think I'm going to have another, you know, maybe a few months or a year of, of having to, to prove it. Hmm. Well, anything I can do to help. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. This will help. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about any new music? I haven't written any new music for this particular medium, but I actually have a couple of like in a completely different area, another side of Patrice, um, you know, commissioned assignments to do. One is for uh, violinist, um, jazz violinist uh, Regina Carter. I'm supposed to write a piece for her that the Library of Congress has um, commissioned. I just finished something um, for the, the Car Center in Detroit, which is part of a consortium of, of uh, University of Michigan, Michigan State, Oberlin, and of this Car Center, which is a uh, uh, performing arts center in Detroit. Uh, I've just finished something for, for them, for their jazz nanette. So I did that, and that was for Terry Lynn Carrington, uh, an assignment that came through her. And uh, some of my symphonic music is starting to get a little bit of traction. I've, I'm supposed to have a recording done by the Wisconsin uh, Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra uh, early next year. And, uh, you know, we'll see how things go. Been, been uh, uh, asked about a couple of other, you know, larger works that may allow for a different intersection of some of the music that I, uh, that I've done. So we'll see. Wow. A lot of it comes back full circle, right? I mean, back to the early foundation of the classical stuff that you weren't so keen on at the time. Now it's maybe coming in handy, right? Absolutely. And Absolutely. lessons you pass along to students with open ears. Not a doubt. Yeah. Wow. And it's been so great talking to you patrice and Thanks, after being a fan it. publishers thank you it's really been uh, been delightful and i hope that your your listeners enjoy enjoy the interview as much as i've enjoyed the conversation absolutely is there a website or anything else you'd like to pass along? yes yes please uh, thank you the um, website is www.patricerussian one word Dot com. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-E-R-U-S-H-E-N.com. Uh, my social media, um, I'm, I'm on uh, Instagram. So, you know, those of you who want to reach out, please do. And uh, yeah, that's it. Fantastic. I wish you a great rest of uh, this year and getting more out there in front of people because you're going to thrill them. There's no doubt about that. It just has to come together. I hope so. And it will. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very excited about being able to get out and play. Thank you so much for doing this, Patrice. Take okay, care of yourself. You. All right. Be well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, Shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkinstuff.net and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven results-oriented professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.